Once again, we welcome you to Moving Forward with Young Voices. Hey, we've got a, a wonderful new, um, I'm going to call them the class of, uh, of uh, fall of 2023 coming in here. And I want to welcome a new contributor. This will be his first time on the program. I want to welcome Leo Plummer. Leo, uh, since we're, we're meeting you for the first time, first of all, congratulations. It's great to have you as a Young Voices contributor. Tell us a little bit about yourself, who you are, what you do. Sure. So I'm a uh... So I'm a research assistant at the Mercatus Center at George Mason University. So I, I work on uh, largely fiscal policy and trade policy, um, the, a lot of the, sort of the Biden and Trump industrial policy stuff. Um, so a lot of that is either basic research or um, writing commentary, that kind of thing. Excellent. Well, I'm glad to have you aboard, and it looks like we've got quite an interesting topic ahead of us. Um, right now, of course, there's a lot going on in the world, but um, I have heard rumblings over the last few months and years about uh, China and concerns about you know China advancing technologically. I'm looking at an article you've written called The U.S. Needs Prudence, Not Panic, in Confronting T China on Tech. And and first of all, let's set the stage um, in terms of, of its its technological might. Where does China stand today, you know, as, as far as being, you know, its, it's ascendancy in the world? I, I'm sure they're, they're not at the top of the heap, but they've come quite a ways, haven't they? They certainly come quite a ways. But um, insofar as we're talking about computing and semiconductors and all of that kind of thing, which is really sort of the, the sort of technological frontier that uh, the Pentagon and the CIA are really worried about, um, there tends to be a little bit of a, a panic or a paranoid tendency in American politics to think to paint our foes at like ten feet tall when they're really closer to three or four feet tall. So if, if you want to think about that as a scale of one to ten, they're probably well below us at this point. Okay, um, and of course AI has become you know almost a, a household word now just in the in the last couple of years. Um, when we talk about the U.S. and and China and and how they have to work together technologically, I mean there's always competition economically, militarily, you know, projecting mm -hmm. power around the world. Um, how does this shake out from a technology standpoint? I mean their manufacturing capability has to be uh, something to be taken into consideration, right? So they do, yeah, they do have a strong manufacturing capability, but what they're, what the Chinese government's particularly worried about is uh, really when it comes to like the military and security and intelligence stuff. So that has to do with, you know, AI and quantum, quantum computing and cyber attacks and all of that kind of thing. Um, so the, the main concern here is uh, the future applications of computing power. So how that can apply to uh, running military simulations or having autonomous drones or, um, you know, conducting cyber attacks on your opponent. Um, so the, the, that's really where the race is now. And I, I think largely the Pentagon is like looking forward in the next decade or two. Uh, and that's, as I'm sure we'll get to, um, that's really where the, the Biden administration and previously the Trump administration have been really focusing a lot of their efforts and they've been kind of clamping down on that. Okay. Yeah. You know, I can, I can see where in some areas there could be cooperation, you know, and I'm talking, you know, even in, in the private sector as, as technological Certainly. advances come, but the Biden administration, yeah. as you point out in your article, actually issued an executive order limiting U.S. investments in China's computing sectors. What was the reasoning behind that? The reasoning behind that was uh, pretty similar to what I just said. So, um, uh, there are, there are basically two concerns here. There, there's one, there is, um, 
as mentioned, like the, the direct military technical applications, but there's also kind of building like a, a, an industrial base. So for designing and manufacturing the most advanced chips, which are really critical to um, like running all of these like supercomputers and, and uh, kind of developing this stuff into the future. So what the Biden administration did uh, last year, I think, like last October was just clamp down on, on they, they issued all of these export controls, they prohibited um, in many cases, U.S. workers from working with certain Chinese uh, technology companies. Um, they're, they've prohibited certain advanced machinery that is pretty much essential for um, creating some of these chips from being uh, exported to China. And that's actually that that machinery. It's sort of like a, a critical choke point in this in this really big complex supply chain. Uh, it, I mean, the semiconductor industry is like super globalized. Everything's really specialized. It's pretty much the U.S., Japan, Netherlands. They 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 tend to dominate uh, certain aspects of this, and they've basically taken advantage of that and really uh, squeezed down on that. Um, mo more recently, like in, in I think it was August or so, they expanded that to include more kind of quantum computing and AI applications that are a little bit more fuzzy but uh, a bit more forward looking. Um, so it, it's clear, basically, from you know the Trump administration with Huawei and, and all of those things back in I think it was 2018 or so. Um, this is a trend that looks like it's going to continue. So, talk to me about the future for the U.S. and China in terms of of uh, computing technology. Are, are they going to have to basically go their own separate ways, forge their own trails? Um, is, is there ever any likelihood that they're going to be able to work together um, in spite of those concerns? That uh, It sounds like the concern is that somebody's going to get far ahead or someone's going to, to dominate uh, you know, that market. Right. So there, there are basically two ways of looking at this. You can look at it through a more narrow perspective that's like really targeted on national security stuff and, and the intelligence stuff. Or you can view it from a more holistic perspective that says, um, basically, the U.S. needs to constantly be ahead of China in every way, always on top, and in, in technologically speaking, into the future. Um, in my article, I'm, I'm basically kind of arguing against the latter. Um, I, I think that's a little bit futile, and uh, we really need to be focusing more on um, just those clear military applications, those clear intelligence applications, so we don't kind of shoot ourselves in the foot, right? Because China. Their, their computing industry, their semiconductor industry, they're trying really, really hard to separate from the rest of the world and build their own industry and so, et cetera, et cetera, just kind of all of that stuff into the future because uh, they're kind of hardening themselves for potentially a future conflict. But at the moment, and certainly in the past, they've been highly, highly dependent on US technology, uh, particularly design sector. So, um, it, I mean, my main concern there is just we don't want to shoot ourselves in the foot and remove a lot of the leverage that we have uh, when it comes to our influence over the Chinese tech sector. And with a lot of these restrictions, we're kind of just pushing them into doubling down on building their own tech sector. Now, that's a bit of a tall order. Uh, no country in history has ever developed their own indigenous, like all within one country, uh, semiconductor computing sector. That It's a crazy globalized thing. Everything's super specialized. They might be decades away from that. They might never do it. Um, but nonetheless, we don't really want to encourage them to do that. So, yeah, I mean, that's that's basically where the concern lies. You point out in, in your article, too, that uh, you actually reference uh, the, the Chinese economic miracle. And 
you know, considering it wasn't that many years ago where, you know, you think about, okay, China, how technologically advanced are they? You know, you think of people riding bicycles everywhere, you know, working in the fields and so forth. They have come a long way. And you mentioned that uh, that security obsessed worldview kind of treats that like, well, that's a bad thing. Um, talk, talk to me about why China's economic miracle is actually a good thing. Right. So this is this is sort of the other aspect of this, right? Because there's I talked about the national security aspect from just the U.S. point of view, but we also have to think about this in terms of just the general, you know, normative, the ethical perspective. Um, you know, the U.S. leads the world in terms of uh, promoting openness and cooperation and free trade and open markets, and we do. You know, the the achievement of the Chinese economy over the past several decades has been amazing. Like they've they've reduced child mortality, they've reduced all sorts of uh, you know nutrition and starvation problems, and you know, we should respect the fact that, you know, this is a country of over a billion people. Um, there's, you know, you, you do want to allow them to be able to advance technology, technologically and economically. Um, and when you're talking about AI and all of that, I mean, that can be used for all sorts of peaceful applications as well. Um, I mean, that's kind of the tricky thing, right? This is a, this is a, what they call a dual use technology. And it's really hard, especially at this stage, considering it's not, it's, we don't know how it's going to turn out. Uh, it's really hard to tell how these chips are going to be used. Are they going to be used for, you know, autonomous killer, hunter killer drones? Are they going to be used to cure cancer? Um, so it, I, I, that's that's an enormous ethical consideration. And there are certain people, uh, there, there's a certain line of thinking that basically says that any gain that China has economically or technologically, even if it's completely peaceful, can somehow be trans translated into um, pretty much in, uh, a military threat. And I, th I think that's a road we just don't want to go down. It's it's good to hear this point of view because, uh, frankly, um, you're right. Most of what I hear, you know, in terms of concern from American policymakers, tends to be along the lines of, you know, as some strategic military value of we've got to stay ahead of them no matter what. But um, I, I like I, I think you do a very good job of splitting the difference here and saying, look, it doesn't have to be all or nothing. And uh, I congratulate yeah. Sean being able to do that. It, it, obviously, there's a lot of moving parts here. Oh, certainly, certainly. You, you have to be able to disaggregate look, what is what is actually going to be potentially a threat strategically, militarily, and what is essentially harmless. Okay, again, we are talking with Leo Plummer. He's a Young Voices contributor. And uh, Leo, where can people follow you on social media? Where can they follow your work? Uh, so they can follow me at uh, Leo Plummer, so L-E-O-P-L-U-M-R at twitter.com. Um, and I essentially will also be posting on a Substack uh, that is run by the Mercatus Center. Uh, this is. Welcome back to Moving Forward with Young Voices. Hey, I'm happy to welcome Andrew Sandstrom to the program. Andrew has been a familiar uh, face and familiar voice. Well, actually a familiar name to me. Andrew, this is the first time I get to hear your voice. But uh, uh, you've worked with the Young Voices program for a while. Now you're an active contributor. For the sake of our audience members meeting you for the very first time, tell us a little bit about yourself. Well, it's great to finally uh, meet you voice to voice, Brian. And I've, of course, I mean, I'm biased, but I've enjoyed the show for a long time. I'm biased because obviously I was helping behind the scenes for a little while. Young Voices is, is awesome. I'm a contributor there now. Uh, I'm originally from Ogden, Utah. I say originally, I still live in Ogden, Utah uh, with my uh, wife and son. We've got a little girl on the way. I've uh, worked for a long time in 
I've worked for about four years in in political advocacy and political. Con- um, I've been a political consultant for about four years. Okay. Now, and I, I don't want to distract from the message we're going to be discussing, but I want to just, I want to give some kudos here to Andrew and, and the other staff at Young Voices. Each week when we do this program, we are literally pulling together four contributors, sometimes from every corner of the world. We talk to contributors on the African continent, in Europe, I mean, in the, every everywhere you can think of. And uh, and he's the one who helped to make that happen and make it happen smoothly and predictably. And, and, and mostly it always goes without a hitch. And I, I I got to tell you, thank you. I really appreciate all your hard work. Thank you, Brian. And uh, of course, uh, shout out to you for all of these interviews that you've done for a very long time now for Young Voices. A lot of rich commentary from a lot of very sharp young people. I would agree. And, and it's like, this is like schooling for me okay i'm i'm getting better informed on world events i'm getting better informed on on domestic things and you and i today are going to talk a little bit about uh, the gop debate that, that just took place um you have an article here nikki haley won the debate can she win the nomination i didn't get to see the debate so do you mind just kind of walking us through uh, some of the high points and low points and particularly uh, where did nikki haley emerge as uh, as kind of a leader in that in that particular debate well, first of all, Brian, I would not, I, I don't have time to go over all of the low points of that debate. Uh, <laughs> there, there were a were, few. <laughs> there, there were quite a few parts that were difficult to watch. Uh, we, we saw mics turned off and other shenanigans. It's, uh, and taking place in the Reagan library too. So, but there, there were, you know, to not focus on all of the negatives of the debate, I think that Nikki Haley's performance was a positive for Republicans because she was able to, uh, she was able to, to shine through, through a couple instances. There's, you know, I mentioned in my piece, there are a lot of Republicans who will always prefer a no holds barred style of, you know, sparring that Donald Trump and, Vivek and others are willing to get into. And I thought that what really made Nikki Haley shine through was she was able to fight without without stooping for the most part. And because of that, you know, if, if you're able, it, she was able to engage with, she was able to engage at a, at a higher level and debate things and articulate things in a way that so, some of the others couldn't when they were sparring with her. And there were a couple, there were a couple moments, uh, that that people remembered uh she she told tim scott to bring it on at one point of course that was kind of silly since they're both from south carolina but uh there there were a lot of moments when when she was able to sort of you know be a fighter without getting in the mud and i think that that you the next gop candidate the next gop excuse me the next nominee for the presidency has to be capable of 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 fighting and fighting well without getting in the mud. And she did that really well at the debate. Okay. I kind of have to poke the elephant in the room. Um, Donald Trump, I don't believe participated in the debate. And frankly, it, it sounds like, uh, you know, you're looking at Nikki as, as a very viable contender. Are you thinking that it's unlikely Trump will be the nominee next year? To be clear, the de facto route here is that Trump becomes the nominee. I have no delusions about that. He's, his polling numbers are very good. We're dealing with a sort of incumbent president. This is a really unusual situation. We've got a guy who've been, who's been president for four years, but not the last four years. If he were running for re-election, 
we wouldn't have any serious contenders. But uh, and it, you know, if he were running for the first time, he'd probably have a harder shot than he has now. So, you know, Trump's polling numbers are are really good right now. Uh, there's a lot of, you know, there's there's a lot of shoes that are yet to drop. I'm sure that are out of everybody's control. And the best thing a candidate that's a challenger to Trump can do right now is position themselves really well. Out of the contenders uh, that Trump has to deal with, Nikki Haley has positioned herself, I believe, better than any of the others. And we're seeing that now with polling in New Hampshire. What are some of the strengths you see that she brings to the table that uh, that may actually make her a better choice than, than Trump? First of all, there's there's foreign policy. And this is an interesting issue because foreign policy is not polling very high as being top of mind for a lot of voters. Of course, I haven't seen, we'll have to see how polling changes. Yeah, after uh, last the, weekend, <laughs> that might change. Yes, that's, and uh, and we'll see how that affects people's views on foreign policy. Uh, it's It'll see how, how much people are willing to warm up to uh, anti-interventionists like Trump, like Ramaswamy. Uh, not that anybody has been warming up to Ramaswamy, but we'll see also how it affects people's views on Russia. You, Ukraine has been a big contentious issue, and we'll see how how it affects people's views on Russia, that Russia has taken a muted approach to responding to these attacks on Israel. So all of that aside, since we're still figuring out with what public opinion has changed with the attacks in Israel, foreign policy has not, for the last few years, been a big issue for Republicans, but it is something that people see as being necessary for a president to be qualified. And uh, polling shows that Republicans care very much that the next president is qualified for office. Trump has an advantage here because he's been in office, but not even Trump who has been in office can talk about foreign policy in an articulate way, the way Nikki Haley can. And I've heard that from my friends, right? Brian, you've probably seen the same thing when you're talking to people, people who are open to a new candidate who are weighing options will say, yo, well, you know, Nikki Haley, she sure is smart when she talks about policy, right? That's really to her advantage. She can do that really well. She is actually probably a little hawkish for my taste, but I think you're absolutely right. To hear her talk about foreign policy versus hearing Trump talk about it, she clearly has a grasp of the subject that uh, that I would guess the other candidates really don't, you know, from her past experience. Yes, and uh, yeah, and that really plays to her advantage. Talk to me about how she can prove that that she can win, because I know um, for the party to get behind her, they they've got to look. Joe Biden, I don't think I don't think he's going to be the nominee. Maybe I'm wrong, but I, I just have a hard time imagining him making it to, to that that stage of the game. But uh, how can Nikki Haley show the GOP that she's got what it takes to step up and bring home the prize? Well, Republicans have to operate on the assumption that they're running against Joe Biden. And uh, and if they're running against Joe Biden, which I believe they probably are, then the polling would show a lot of them performing well. I mean, it depends on the poll. Trump recently told Megyn Kelly that every poll shows him winning. That's not true. But a lot of them are polling well against Biden. The thing is, is remember, people thought that Romney had a really good chance in 2011. And then he didn't perform very well in 2012. So we have to sort of look at, remember, a lot is going to change. The media landscape is going to become pretty hostile to whoever the Republican nominee is. Oh, yeah. And Nikki Haley has shown in polls that she outperforms the other candidates with independents and with moderates in beating Biden in a general election. 
And she needs to not just show Republicans that she can win in a general election. She needs to show them that she'll be winning for them and that she's a fighter for the things they care about. She's too moderate for some people's taste. She needs to show that because of that, she can articulate a conservative vision to people who don't share a conservative vision and be a winner for conservatism in that way. Okay, again, we are talking with Andrew Sandstrom. He's a Young Voices contributor as well as a political consultant based in Ogden, Utah. Um, Andrew, for people who want to follow you, what's the best way to go about finding you on social media and also finding your work? You can follow me at Twitter, uh, asandstrom451. And you could also email me. You can email me at andrew at freedompeak.us. All right. Thank you so much. Thanks, Brian. Welcome back. This is segment three of Moving Forward with Young Voices. Hey, we're very happy to welcome a new contributor. Her name is Lara Pabello, and uh, she is checking in uh, with us today for the very first time. Lara, wonderful to have you on the show. For people who are meeting you for this first time, tell us about yourself. Tell us who you are and what you do. Um, Well, my name is Lara Pabello. I'm right now in Mexico, and I'm Mexican. I recently graduated from a degree, from a master's degree from the University of Glasgow in history of globalization. And my main focus focus has been immigration. So that's what I'm talking about today. Yeah, I, well, I'm looking at this wonderful article you wrote, uh, Florida's immigration law can disrupt key industries in the state. And I understand immigration is a pretty big issue in many, many states across uh, the United States. I, I was not aware, though, of some of the... the different aspects of what Florida was dealing with. Help me understand uh, the legislation that was signed by Governor DeSantis uh, back in July. What did that legislation do? And let's talk about how it uh, it may actually disrupt some of the key industries in that state. Okay, so Governor DeSantis, three months ago, signed, well, he signed a law in May, but the late, the the law came into action three months ago in July. Uh, it's the Senate Bill 1718, and it's uh, it's basically called, uh, referred to as the rough, roughest immigration law against illegal immigrants in the United States. And it's, it's like a package of laws and policies aimed at discouraging illegal immigration in the state. And uh, they have different ramifications. For example, is... Um, um, making some driver's license from different states. Um, it also has a component like a law that disrupt that um, bans and um, uh, that bans illegal immigrants from working in certain in certain businesses with through the E-Verify system. So it makes it harder for employers to to hire anyone, not just illegal immigrants. And it puts some hefty fines over these businesses and over these employers. Uh, and uh, well, yes, uh, overall, the law is was just uh, meant to discourage all uh, present or future illegal immigrants in the state. 
And uh, the thing is that it disrupts some of the key industries of industries of Florida, for example, the harvesting of oranges, which is the most uh, staple industry of the state because it's called the sunshine and the orange state. Oh, the yes. orange state. Yeah. I think that the last the last time I checked, uh, around ninety percent of all orange juice in the United States is produced in Florida and picked by. Floridians, be them illegal or illegal residents. Um, it also disrupts the building industry, which, which is actually booming in the state because it has so many new people coming in, so many other industries booming, so they need to build residential buildings. And many of these workers are actually illegal immigrants. Um, oh, I think I lost you. Okay. Um, so it also disrupts the building industry. Uh, it also disrupts the trucker industry i don't know if you can call it like that transportation you know, yeah absolutely yeah, you, because many I, I mean some of these industries that you listed in your article i think about it and you know I, and it wouldn't have occurred to me unless it was pointed out but yeah um entertainment hospitality art waste management agriculture all of those um and to 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 just make it clear, this is not a matter of, uh, well, you know, there are, there are all these people standing in line for these jobs. No, these jobs, they're actually having trouble finding enough workers to fill these jobs. So when you turn people away, as, as this law does, um, it leaves those jobs unfilled. And as you pointed out, in some cases, uh, you know, tons of fruit left to rot in the fields because there is no one to harvest it. It's, yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it has happened in the past. Actually, like 10 years ago, there was a big problem in Florida with oranges rotting in the fields because there was no one to pick them up. And that's a huge loss for all the farmers in the, in the state. Um, also, there's a very concerning labor shortage in states. And yes, these are not jobs that are quite hard to fill. And by pushing people away, you're just disrupting everyone in the state, not just the illegal immigrants. And uh, the thing is, I just recently read an article about uh, how Florida just started its hurricane season, like every year, like around September, October, they just had a hurricane. I don't remember the name. I think it was Idrina, Irina. I don't remember the name. But I read a very interesting article in the New, in the New York Times that stated that many residents in the state had a lot of trouble finding people to help them clean after the debris of the hurricane and to um, install new doors, install install new windows in their homes because there was no one, because many illegal immigrants that live in Louisiana or Texas or Mississippi or nearby or in the south, like, you know, in the south of the U.S., they don't want to drive to Florida because they can get prosecuted and deported. So a lot of United States citizens are actually also being bothered by these laws. It's not only business owners, it's not only people who drive, uh, it's just like citizens who need a helping hand. <laughs> so yeah, it's actually quite a, a counterproductive law for Florida overall, not just for illegal immigrants. I know one of the concerns that I hear people regularly express in association with illegal Im immigration is, well, there are people coming here who just want to get a government handout. They don't want to work. They don't want to contribute. They just want welfare benefits. They want the taxpayers to support them. That doesn't seem to describe the people, though, that you're talking about, the ones who actually are, are coming here. Let's, In fact, let's, let's talk about it. The, the root reason that people come to the U.S. and particularly would want to come to Florida is what? Why would they come? Oh, just, 
uh, people just want to make a living and sometimes people just want to escape extreme violence like in Honduras and El Salvador and actually um, in the case of Mexican immigration because I'm Mexican Mexican immigration legal and illegal has been decreasing for the past 10 years Mexicans are not really going to the US as much as we used to uh, it's mostly people from Central America and South America like right now you, in the U.S. there's a very big number of large number of Venezuelans and Colombia and they just want to make a living and they don't want to leave from handouts because at least in the in the case of Venezuela, they know what handouts actually can lead to. Uh, giving too many handouts to many people can actually just uh, uh, put them away from working because, you know, that they think that they have it all done and a lot of Venezuelans in the U.S. know that that's not a good idea. They are actually anti-handouts. And well, uh, something that I think about a lot, being in Mexico and seeing how these immigrants pass from, come from South and Central America, they cross Mexico, which is not an easy task because it's it's all a mountain, it's a desert, and it's it's a it's a dangerous country if you don't know how to look after yourself. So uh, actually, these people are very strong very hard the lives of their kids and risk just have just think that the u.s instead of closing their door the doors to them and making life harder for them they should be accepting them because they're extremely hard working people is is there any talk um in florida or elsewhere maybe this is something i guess this would be something that may have to happen at the federal level about uh, streamlining the path to to citizenship um, I know that uh, for, for many people, it's so expensive and there's so much paperwork that has to be done that it just doesn't make sense to, you know, to come through the regular channels uh, to, to get to America. Um, it's, it's easier to, you know, to come across the border without permission. But unfortunately, that means then they kind of have to live in the shadows. Um, there is no uh, debate in place about streamlining the pathways to legal residency or citizenship in the U.S. Actually, DeSantis, alongside with many other Republicans, and I think also Democrats, are even talking about ending birthright citizenship in America wow. uh, for the state of illegal immigrants. So I think that the I think that the response actually swings to the other way rather than to streamlining the residency. They, and they want to make it tougher. They want to make want it, to make more, it more difficult. Okay. Yeah, well, it, but, and, and, and it sounds like in Florida, that's what they've done. That's the law that was signed in, in July. But you're pointing out that there are costs that come with, with these measures. So on the one hand, the people who want to slow the flow of migrants coming into the state, either legal or illegal. Okay, it's slowing, but uh, it looks like it's, it's coming at a pretty significant cost that they may not have anticipated. Yeah, it's actually have hasn't been a very country, uh, very productive. These laws have been actually quite harmful for everyone, legal or illegal. Are are there other states that are looking to follow Florida's example? Um, yeah, of course, all of the southern states, Texas, New Mexico, and uh, many other states are actually looking to end the sanctuary state like the sanctuary city state you know the 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 statute for cities to protect illegal immigrants and not turn them into the, into the police and uh, detention for them okay again we are talking with laura pabello uh, she is a young voices contributor laura where can people follow you on social media uh, 
um, they can follow me on uh, it's it's a Spanish handle, so you can follow me on Que pasa con Laura, which means uh, what's going on with Laura. Um, <laughs> I don't know how to spell it, but just look at Que pasa con Laura. As if you were spelling it in Spanish, so that's my handle. Welcome back. This is our fourth and final segment. We are talking with Ben Sneed. Ben, this is Ben's first time on Moving Forward with Young Voices. Ben, glad to have you aboard. Take a moment here. Tell us about who you are and what you do. Hey, Brian. Uh, good to be on the show. I am a student at the University of Oregon. I've uh, been somewhat involved in sort of local politics in Oregon here for a while uh, and, and looking forward to graduating from the university here at the end of this year. All right. Well, I'm looking at an article that you've written. Walkouts are worth it, even if it costs Republicans re-elections. And I guess uh, last November, Oregon voters passed Measure 113. Um, tell me about what that measure was and, and what what was it that prompted voters to uh, to vote on that and pass it? Well, Brian, the first thing that's important to understand about Measure 113 is sort of the history of the Oregon State Legislature. Obviously, Oregon is a majority Democrat state, uh, and that's reflected in the legislature. Democrats are controlling uh, both chambers, House and the Senate, and the governor's mansion as well, and that's been true for the better part of a decade. Uh, what that means is that there is uh, not much recourse for the Republican minority when they attempt to halt the Democrat progressive agenda. Uh, what that looks, the reality there is that uh, a big part of the state, the eastern part of the state especially, is obviously not represented by that majority party. And the Republicans in the minority don't have much recourse. Uh, but there's a rule uh, in the Senate and the House that requires two-thirds uh, or three-fifths quorum uh, before legislation is passed. So in recent years, the Republicans in the minority have used this sort of as a last resort. It's a bit similar to the filibuster rule in the United States Senate, um, but it's considered a little bit more of a norm violation. So in the past few years, the past few legislative sessions, the Oregon Democrats have proposed bills such as a cap-and-trade bill, uh, gerrymandering the the, the lines of the congressional districts in the state of Oregon, these pieces of sort of more divisive legislation that have a direct impact on, on the way of life for rural and oftentimes conservative Oregonians who are represented by the minority Republican Party. And the GOP in the, in the House and the Senate in Salem have responded by walking out. And what that does is it stalls sort of all normal business, uh, preventing any legislation from passing the House or the Senate. Uh, but it also prevents those sorts of more divisive pieces of legislation uh, that are being pushed through the legislature by the progressive uh, Democrats who are mainly coming from Portland and Oregon cities. Now. Uh, those walkouts have successfully stalled and prevented these pieces of legislation like cap and trade, like gerrymandering, from impacting the lifestyles of rural Oregonians. But in recent years, uh, specifically last election season, progressive activists responded to that by proposing Measure 113. Uh, and what Measure 113 did, pretty simple, barred representatives who participate in these walkouts from running for re-election. Uh, now, there were some ambiguities this summer uh, that 
about sort of the text of the statute. Republicans uh, threatened to sue, saying it was unclear. But the Democrat secretaries of state this summer basically decided that members with more than 10 absences uh, who have been walking out to represent their constituents and halt the progressive agenda are going to be barred from running for re-election. Wow. I mean, that's that's some pretty serious teeth. But again, I guess it, it comes down to how committed are they to principle, you know, versus just simply staying in power. That's exactly correct, Brian. And I think what's interesting about it is that uh, although Republicans, you know, they're threatening to sue, they're obviously quite opposed to running for uh, being barred from running for reelection. That's understandable, uh, wanting to maintain your seat in the legislature. But at some point, my take is that these walkouts have been worth it. They've prevented legislation, again, really thinking of cap and trade in particular, that would have decimated a, a lot of the industry and economy of rural parts of the state, of the constituents of these Republican members of the legislature. And if they have to pay for their seats in the state house and the state senate, uh, then I think that's worth the cost of preventing a gerrymandered congressional district map from being approved, preventing cap and trade. This summer, there was some very divisive legislation uh, regarding abortion um, and transgender health care uh, that were also stopped by these walkouts. And I think that's worth the price. And I think what we need uh, and what if I were one of those folks that's living in sort of the rural part of the state, um, has more conservative values, uh, has a lifestyle that depends on, for instance, the lumber industry and these components of the uh, of the economy that rely on producing some carbon uh, as it pertains to cap and trade, I wouldn't mind knowing that my representative is going to be barred for re-election if they're able to stop this divisive progressive legislation that's coming from the cities like Portland and Eugene. I like that uh, you you draw, I think, a cor correctly, a parallel between civil disobedience and, and what these guys are and gals are doing. Um, and, and maybe this is going to anger some people, but... Um, Martin Luther King Jr., uh, Rosa Parks, you know, when she refused to give up her seat in the bus, when uh, Martin Luther King Jr. sat at the wrong lunch counter, um, they did not uh, try to avoid the consequences. They were arrested. They were taken to jail. They were tried, you know, for, for the crime of, you know, not following the rules. They had skin in the game, and that's why people took them seriously. And, and I can't help but wonder if, you know, similarly, as you point out in your article, Someone who's willing to forego their, their the future of their career in politics in order to to make a point to stand for principle, um, nobody can accuse them of you know trying to avoid the consequences. I think that's exactly correct, Brian. I think that civil disobedience comparison is, is that's what this is. This is civil disobedience, and you're exactly correct. They need to be willing to accept the consequences of that. And when you're engaged in an act of civil disobedience. Uh, you have to say the consequences that I'm going to accept are worth it for what I'm trying to achieve instead of trying to back out of the consequences later. I don't want to sound too sappy about it, but when this is done correctly, when someone is willing to give up their job, their seat uh, in our state legislature for the purpose of protecting their constituents, that's an act of political courage. It's an act of the political courage that frankly should be commended. And it's not something 
We see a lot in today's politics, whether at a national level or here locally, uh, sort of uh, west of the Rockies. And that's something we should recognize. And if that's the consequence of Measure 113, uh, frankly, as a voter in Oregon who leans a little bit more conservative, uh, that's something I'm completely fine with. So I have to ask, those who do make that principled stand and end up, uh, you know, not being able to run for re-election, are there other candidates with principles and with a backbone ready and waiting to, to step up and run for those seats when they become open? Well, I, I certainly would hope so. But the reality is that I think that's in a lot of, in a big part, that's the way the United States Congress uh, by the founders and the way our state legislature was sort of designed to work in a lot of ways. We don't have explicit term limits, Brian, but uh, there's nothing wrong with someone saying they're going to serve uh, one term, maybe two terms in the state legislature. That's obviously two years in the House and then four years in our state Senate. And then going back to whatever their job was back home, uh, you know, whether they're from Pendleton or Ontario uh, or Medford, uh, you know, going back to their previous career, saying that they've done their two or four or six years of service, uh, and then having someone else, someone else from the community, not, it's a term that gets thrown around a lot, Brian, but I think there's some merit to it. Not a career politician, someone that's going to go uh, serve their time, stay connected with their constituents, genuinely represent them, genuinely advocate for their interests. Uh, and then uh, the cycle continues. So I don't think there's anything wrong with that. And I think that it, it would, another benefit, frankly, Brian, it's going to bring fresh voices in to, into the Capitol and Salem. And I think the voters of the entire state, whether they're moderate, whether they're Democrat, whether they're Republican, would end up respecting that and respecting that commitment uh, that the Republicans would end up adopting. And again, as a Republican voter myself, if that's what Measure 113 does, I'm all right with that. And I think it's actually a pretty great opportunity for the Republican Party in the state of Oregon. All right. Again, we are talking with Ben Sneed. Ben, you and I need to have a further conversation on this because now, uh, unfortunately, we're down to about 20 seconds here. But I, I want to know, uh, so do these uh, legislators who are willing to make a stand and do that walkout, are they from eastern Oregon or... Just... Most of them are from eastern Oregon, other rural parts of the state, southern Oregon. Okay. Most of the Democrats coming from Eugene or Portland. That's, and so you and I need to have a little talk about the whole greater Idaho movement and, and how, that, how that might uh, play into something like this. Again, we're talking with Ben Sneed. He's a Young Voices contributor. Ben, where can people follow you on social media? Uh, I'm at Real Ben Sneed on Twitter. All right. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you, Brian.